keep those California Indians down. Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. I learned about Holtec's proposal in 2016. They call it consolidated interim storage. So I learned from other activists that this company is planning to bring all of the waste from all of the nuclear power plants in the country to New Mexico, you know, to consolidate it here for the interim. Interim meaning until they find a permanent place to put it. Because you mentioned Yucca Mountain. That's a failed project. Yucca will never open. So where do we put this stuff? The United States has no permanent place to put this waste. Today on American Indian Airwaves, part two of our ongoing series on nuclear colonialism, the legacy of uranium mining in the Dene Navajo Nation, and the proposal to build a high-level nuclear waste facility in the southeastern portion of the state of New Mexico, which is being opposed by several Native American nations throughout the region. All that and more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone food Today on American Indian Airwaves, nuclear colonialism with Leona Morgan, longtime Diné Navajo activist. This is part two of a three-part interview that is being broadcasted over three consecutive episodes of American Indian Airwaves. The series focuses on our guest's community work since 2007, which includes combating against many aspects of nuclear colonialism. Leona Morgan not only helped prevent the construction of a new ISL in Pseudo-Leach, uranium mine in eastern Navajo, but also she has and continues to raise awareness about the extreme dangers of transporting high-level radioactive waste material by highway and railroad nearby and through Indian country. She also continues to raise the critical consciousness about the legacy of uranium mining and its unresolved impacts on the Diné people, nation, and other Native American nations. In addition, our guest provides an extensive update on the unresolved issue of nuclear waste and how Holtec International is proposing to construct a high-level nuclear waste facility in southeastern New Mexico, despite the opposition of numerous Native American nations. Leona Morgan is a longtime Diné activist and community organizer. She co-founded and works with the Nuclear Issues Study Group, Diné No Nukes, which contributes to the Hall No Initiative and Radiation Monitoring Project. Our guest collaborates nationally with many groups to address the entire nuclear fuel chain in the United States and is part of the international campaign, Don't Nuke the Climate, that focuses on nuclear energy 
as a global climate issue. And now, part two of our three-part interview on nuclear colonialism. We continue where we left off last week on the negative effects and impacts of uranium mining in the Diné or Navajo Nation. I mentioned, you know, uranium uh, production declined in the 80s after the Cold War. Uh, we actually started getting a lot of our uranium from Russia. So now that's not happening. <laughs> and we need to figure out, you know, if people, well, I don't think we need to figure out where to get uranium from. I think we need to stop using uranium. But the United States, they um, were pushing for uranium to be classified as a critical mineral for domestic energy production. Again, I think it's just a guise to continue production for war efforts and, and U.S. imperialism. But that's just me. So anyways, this whole thing with abandoned uranium mines, going back to your question, uh, the United States, they um, have no law to clean up the 15,000 plus abandoned uranium mines. And again, it's probably much more than that. In 2007, there was a while back, there was this thing called the Waxman hearing. So Representative Waxman from California, um, he had read in uh, the LA Times um, some, some articles about uranium and he actually started to learn about uranium and pushed for these hearings, which prompted for what they call the five-year cleanup plan. So Henry Waxman, um, he held these congressional hearings in 2007 um, to hear, hear about this problem. And so I, I wish I went. I, um, I just started working with INDOM, the Eastern Navajo against uranium mining. So there was a couple of folks who went and, um, you know, different people went to testify in Washington, D.C. So long story short, that led to some funding of cleanup on Navajo Nation of abandoned uranium mines. So, so any mines that occurred, you know, after regulations existed, you know, they're supposed to clean up. And ideally, you would think they would clean up to pre-mining conditions. So when you talk about cleanup, it's not, there's no one size fits all. Depending what agency you're dealing with, EPA or DOE, NRC, um, depending what state you're in, depending uh, if it's, yeah, state or federal. And then also um, what years the operation took place. Mm. That will all depend on which laws are used and where the funding comes for cleanup. So it's incredibly complicated. And there's no cleanup funding. Like for nuclear power plants, they have the decommissioning fund, which the nuclear power industry is always trying to get at. And they do. They, you know, they sue every time they need to to get their, to recoup their losses for nuclear power plants. For nuclear, I mean, for uranium, there is no cleanup fund. So what the government does is they, they have to go after what they call PRPs, potentially responsible parties. So these are uranium companies that might still exist, a lot of these companies back in the 50s don't exist anymore. Today, some of them are, you know, like we talked about the Church Rock spill. That site was owned by United Nuclear Corporation. Today, it's owned by General Electric. So General Electric right now is dealing with the cleanup there. And, and that's a whole nother long story. Horrible plan, horrible cleanup plan. The community was fighting it. They stalled it for a while. 
but it's going forward. I mean, and I can talk about that. That's another part of this whole issue of abandoned uranium mine cleanup is, okay, well, first of all, they, they don't fund it. These things, the industry didn't leave, you know, good documents for the government where to go clean up. There's a lack of oversight and then the coordination between all these agencies. But the funding, it's, it's, it's just not there. And so this is one of the big things we have to really address over the next few hundred years. Like literally, we need to make a plan that's going to last at least 100 years. You know, how do we deal with the cleanup? Um, what stages, you know, the funding? Um, because these things are very slow. It, the, the, it was quick to make the mess. But then now to try to put everything back, it's impossible to put it back to pre-mining conditions. And that's um, one of the things I wanted to emphasize is there's a lot of laws to regulate how to clean up and all of that. But when the industry, like let's say a uranium mining company went in, they did their mining, and then now they're ready to clean up and go home. Basically, just call it quits and, and leave the community. They do whatever they can to remediate or to lower, you know, radon levels or radiation contamination. But in the end, it's either, I honestly, I'm not a, I'm not a nuclear physicist. So I don't know if it's like literally impossible or if it's just they don't have the funding to do it. But at a certain point when they can't get the level down mm-hmm. to, to what it was before, they apply for what's called alternate concentration levels. ACL. So an ACL is basically permission for the company to clean up to this other level, and then they can leave and go home. They don't have to clean to what it was before. So essentially leaving this permanent contamination in the community. And some companies are still there trying to remediate and, and you know, do reverse osmosis. Like there's a place in Milan, New Mexico, owned by this uh, Barrett Gold company, this place called Hayes. Homestake uranium mill. It's a huge, huge contaminated site where they have this huge underground plume of contamination that they're trying, like they're constantly pumping it to keep the contamination localized. But the company wants to leave. They're ready to go home. And the community is like, you know, once they stop pumping, that groundwater is going to spread. So they don't want, the community doesn't want this to stop. They need to, they want them to pump. I don't know what the community wants. I don't live there, but I know this is like, this has been a huge issue for decades. And essentially, if that company stops pumping, you know, it's going to contaminate the whole region. And we we already see this in certain places where groundwater has been contaminated. And, And that's probably one of the hardest things to clean up. So when people ask, people ask me all the time, what does cleanup look like? Again, I'm not a uranium worker. I'm an activist living in the city who watches these things. I monitor these things. I visit these places. I talk to the people. Um, and essentially what happens is the, the sites will be cleaned up visually. Like you, the structures will be removed. They might scrape up the dirt and put clean dirt on top. But you wouldn't know unless you actually have a Geiger counter. Um, and how many people own Geiger counters? You know, so this is one of the things I started called um, with help from uh, a couple organizations and a, you know, some, a lot of support nationally. We started this thing called Radiation Monitoring Project. Mm-hmm. So I have a Geiger counter and I go to these places um, so I can kind of measure for myself and see what are the levels. But this, this is not 
normal. People don't have Geiger counters out there. So when you say cleanup, just because they took the buildings away, that doesn't really mean the land is cleaned up or the groundwater has been cleaned up. So what, what they do is they try to mitigate and to contain contamination. So like if it's an open mine, they'll, you know, like you said, cap it or somehow maybe brick it in or just close it so that it's permanently in some way, you know, less dangerous. So people can't get in there, animals can't get in there. And so less radiation gets out. That's the idea. But it's not like they go in there and they scoop everything out and they throw it in a washer machine and it's clean, you know. So when you say cleanup, it's different everywhere you go, whatever the legal level is, and also what is possible. So some places, maybe it's, it, it was an easy place to, you know, remediate. But if it's like Skyline Mine in Monument Valley, that was on the side of a cliff. And that's constantly coming down. And then Jackpile Mine over in Laguna or Pawati, that is going, it went through two Superfund processes. You know, they tried to do it once. And then it's also a question of the, the people, this is, this is something to consider too, because uh, let's say in Shiprock, the federal government said it's too contaminated to clean up. So we're just going to let Mother Nature take care of it. Wow. Because if we start to scoop it up, we're going to make a bigger mess. So I know I'm kind of rambling, but I just kind of gave you different examples. And so when you say cleanup, the government has some laws and regulations uh, based on, like I said, timing, industry, uh, whatever, whatever they were doing. And then the industry has their whatever they think, you know. So they use what's called reference man. So health guidelines based on a 35-year-old white male, you know, which is going to receive radiation. His body will take, will probably not take radiation the same way. I mean, this has been proven. I shouldn't say probably, but so a 35-year-old white male body will not absorb radiation the same way as a, a baby, you know, as a, especially as a woman. So even a woman of the same age, let's say a brown woman. But when you say, uh, a brown girl, a, a child, or even a fetus. So the most vulnerable are, you know, still in the womb. And so people argue regulations should be set for the most vulnerable. So basically a human fetus. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Leona Morgan from the Diné or Navajo Nation on nuclear colonialism. You're listening to part two of a three-part interview as part of our series. And now back to the interview. Um, so these are some of the things, you know, when you talk about cleanup, the government says this, the industry says this, health professionals of course, have a different opinion. So for years, communities have, demand, have been demanding cumulative impact studies to, to see how uranium has impacted not just, you know, this little area in a vacuum, but on a, on a, on a full scale. So looking at, for example, um, in Church Rock, they were living this, this place where the spill happened. Um, the community was living between two active uranium mines, well, three really, but one was kind of not so close. So really two, like adjacent, living between two that were connected underground, I heard. And so the community, the Navajo Diné community, 
Um, they uh, call themselves Redwater Pond Road Community. Several of them still live there. Some of them moved out of the area. Um, the EPA conveniently assisted with that. But, um, yeah, so those two mines, they were, they were living between them. Uh, and then down the road was the mill. Edith Hood is a matriarch, and she tells this story a lot about how they were kids. You know, they lived there. They were there before the uranium company. And when they were children, they saw these trucks coming in. They saw these things happening. And then as she grew up, she herself even worked at the mill for a little while. And now she has health problems. But some of the other stories from other community members, you know, they talk about using sage, you know, the sage that grows mm -hmm. or like having sweats. And so imagine using sage and, you know, having a sweat in a location that's between two uranium mines mm. um, and the concentration of whatever radiation. I don't know if they were doing sweats during the mining and all of that. You know, I wasn't alive because a lot of this, it was before I was born. <laughs> and so I hear about the blasting and, you know, things like this that, you know, was happening. But, um, yeah, I'm just trying to paint a picture. I wasn't there, but communities that were not informed or educated about radioactive contamination, you know, they're just living their traditional style of, you know, whatever they do, eating, growing food, eating their normal diets, you know, practicing their normal traditional ways, and, and, and all of the stuff that they're using, you know, they come to find out later, this is hurting them. And so this is, again, this is what uh, Edith Hood, you know, this is her story that she tells. And, um, Again, like with Shin Kolobwe, I like to share these stories because I have the opportunity to travel and see these things firsthand. And so when I have the opportunity to speak in front of, let's say, um, government officials, I, I, I really try to focus on what is important. But um, because for me, I know at government meetings, they usually have a, an agenda and they want to stick to whatever is germane. So let's say Holtec, the application for consolidated interim storage in Southeast New Mexico, you know, I usually will bring up uranium no matter where I am. But if you only have three minutes, it's really hard to, to talk about all of these things. And so, yeah, this is something that I think is really important for people to know about whenever we're talking about nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, that, this is still impacting our people today. And when I was talking about nuclear colonialism, I was really talking about health, um, like environmental health, um, genocide, human health. But it's also the impact to our cultural health. Mm -hmm. So our cultural identity, how do we use, you know, our resources? Um, how, how, how does that change how we've been using the things that we've been given and, and we're taught to use, you know, if it's contaminated, you know. So with the mountains, uh, Mount Taylor as a sacred mountain, um, we have four sacred mountains as Dinah people. Mount Taylor was mined a lot. And um, there's places that are contaminated. But just to think about how this impacts those beings there, I mean, how do we study that, going back to cumulative impacts? How do we measure this? for our future generations and it, it will have an impact that we we don't know and understand right now and so this is something i think as indigenous peoples 
um, looking into, we say seven generations or however many into the future. Um, we're talking about that now, but the government, you know, they don't think like indigenous people. So we've always, there's always been teachings about keep it in the ground. Um, we already knew these things and, and, it's just, it's funny to hear, um, you know, climate activists talk about these things when these are just old teachings. Like indigenous people, we just always had these teachings. It's not new stuff, but when we go to protest or talk about it in like a government meeting, you know, we sound radical, but it's really not. It's, it's just kind of like common sense. Like we don't, we, hey, let's not contaminate our water. <laughs> You've touched on so many issues and, you know, and, um, and I appreciate that in listening to you and talking about Mother Earth and, you know, bringing up the legacy of uh, nuclear colonization and beginning in referencing where the uranium came from for the Manhattan Project in a different part of Mother Earth. You brought up Japan and how Japan opposes nuclear weapons, but they support the production of nuclear waste. And, you know, and and for people that remember the Fukushima Daiichi uh, nuclear power plant, you know, they TEPCO, which runs that facility, they plan on releasing what is over a million metric tons of radioactive waste in, uh, in 2023, which is not the first time they've done this. But there is a, a nuclear colonial legacy just with that with that one nuclear power plant. You brought up nuclear weapons and, you know, even going back to the Obama administration, which the the Biden administration has affirmed uh, last year is spending over a trillion dollars to reconstitute America's imperial nuclear weaponry arsenal. And they've talked about the legacy in a very um, summarized way, right, of uranium mining within the Diné or Navajo Nation and, and other Native American nations. And, and with abandoned uranium mines, um, I think something like 11% of all the abandoned uranium mines are in Indian country, right, within indigenous nations and and then just the overall uh harm you brought up whole tech and you know one of the things we haven't touched on is uh, the production of nuclear waste and right these radioactive isotopes that can last from six to 250,000 years depending on the the isotope and and that's all part of that legacy of um, uranium mining and how it will impact future generations and and also um, we didn't talk about the 1872 Surface Mining Act which I know is important in in your conversation and in your points you're making about the value of uranium mining but also the fact that uh, when it comes to storage uh, U.S. Department of Energy tried to build the largest nuclear waste storage facility in Nui or Shoshone territories uh, at the Yucca Mountain, uh, the proposed Yucca Mountain nuclear uh, storage facility, which was proposed back in the 80s. And that project appears to have been nixed, you know, during the Trump administration through it being defunded. And I want to come back to Holtec, right? And and talk about, um, you know, what's the, for storing nuclear waste in New Mexico? It's a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, 
all the time there's different things happening, you know, every state, every, I, I would argue, um, maybe not every single community, but every state has some kind of nuclear issue. And I'm sure folks are not aware of what their local issue is, but um, I think, you know, a simple Google search will, will help folks to figure out what they're dealing with here in New Mexico. Yeah. I don't think we could do a simple Google search because we have two national nuclear labs. Uh, we have estimated probably 500 or so abandoned uranium mines, uh, several, a handful of abandoned, well, I don't know if they're abandoned, but uranium mills. So the mines are one place that are very in need of, very much in need of cleanup, but mills, mills are the place where they processed the uranium and used a lot of water. And there weren't as many mills, but they were, they caused a lot of contamination. So we have, I think, I forget the exact number, about a half dozen. And then we got um, the world's only deep geological waste repository for weapons waste near Carlsbad called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP, WIP for short. And then just east of WIP, we have the only enrichment facility in North America, owned by Urenco, so uranium enrichment there, here in New Mexico. And then we have so the abandoned mines, which, as I mentioned, will always be a threat for new mining if, if we've already had mining. And then um, the, the waste sites, I think I'm forgetting um, a few places, but we also have a, a lot of research going on at the state, state schools. So we have NMSU. They just got a lot of money to research reprocessing um, of nuclear waste. Uh, there's the, the, the school in um, Socorro that does some research on depleted uranium stuff. I'm not really sure exactly what they're doing, but that's also an issue folks have worked on in the past to, to fight that. And then, of course, UNM here in Albuquerque, where I go to school, is a nuclear research facility. So all of these, uh, all of these schools, they have had, are in the midst of, and will continue to have, collaborations and partnerships with the labs. And even in New Mexico, there's a concern in um, some of the northern communities near Los Alamos. Um, there was a high school student that brought this to our attention, what they call the high school to labs pipeline. So recruiting students to work in the labs where they might not have the high level jobs, but you know, the more dirty jobs. So we have in New Mexico, a lot of nuclear stuff happening. Which is kind of funny because um, for me, I know the, um, some of the researchers looking into fusion, a friend of mine actually, I know they had just moved to Livermore. So I'm kind of curious if they, are, had, if they had something to do with that because um, that was recently in the news. But anyways, um, so in New Mexico, there's a lot of stuff going on. And um, to come back to Holtec, uh, Holtec is a company, an international company that does a lot of different things. I like to compare Holtec. I it's not as funny today because maybe people don't know this show called Thirty Rock. <laughs> and maybe this is not the best best example to bring up, but I, I, I love it whenever Alec Baldwin is talking about vertical integration because mm. of how nutty he sounds. But that's exactly what Holtec makes me think of is like they're in the business of decommissioning, they're in the business of building the containers to transport the waste. And they're in the business of trying to store the waste in New Mexico. So Holtec is this company that already has, it's, it's a bad actor. You can, people can look into it on their own. But, and I've been on these phone calls, these meetings, um, they call them IndyCap meetings, the um, nuclear power plant decommissioning community advisory panels. 
So, you know, I hear what Holtec is saying to these communities in the East Coast that have reactors that are shutting down. And Holtec is saying, oh, yeah, we we are in the business of, you know, fast decommissioning. We can decommission your nuclear reactor in eight years. And we even have a place to take it in New Mexico. And those people want it. Those people love the stuff. That's what they tell the other people that we, we love it, that we and and. Don't get me wrong, there might be a few people who are in business with Holtec who do love it, like I'm going to just say like Representative Catherine Brown, um, John Heaton, you know, these are some of the uh, New Mexico legislators who invited Holtec to Southeast New Mexico. These are the people responsible um, for bringing this company. And so Holtec says that New Mexico wants this stuff because we're going to make jobs out of it and we're going to use it for economic development. Well, maybe that's what the legislators say as they try to sell this project to, you know, taxpayers. But ultimately, Holtec is in business with a small company called Eddie Lee Energy Alliance, mm-hmm. Alia, which is made up of legislators and the mayor of Hobbs and Carlsbad. And so the southeast corner of the state this is where um they have a lot of fracking so this is in the permian basin and that corner of the state is more is 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 way more republican and conservative than other parts of the state they just had a couple municipalities pass abortion bans like new mexico is known for being super progressive on abortion and this is the same part of the state that has elected to use some federal law to ban abortion. I mean, they can't really do that because anyways, but that's just to give you an idea. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Leona Morgan from the Diné or Navajo Nation on nuclear colonialism. You're listening to part two of a three-part interview as part of our series. And now back to the interview their values and and where they're thinking. And so some of those people, they testify again in public meetings. New Mexico has a brain drain and we're the worst in the country for education, you know, poverty, healthcare, like, and we are, we have like very low stats on quality of life measurements. As an indigenous person, you know, this is our home. We're never going to leave here. But for non-natives that are looking for a cheap place to live, we have a lot of people coming from California, but, that's a whole another topic. So what the legislators down there are saying, New Mexico has this brain drain where our, our kids are leaving to go to other places to get jobs because we don't have enough jobs here. And so they want to develop this whole nuclear sector. So once this, so they're counting on this nuclear waste storage to not just provide jobs, which during construction, of course, there's going to be more, but once construction is done and then it's just daily operation, it's not like a lot of jobs as much as it was during construction. It's been a while since we, um, I used to have all the numbers in front of me. When we were first fighting this, um, the proposal came out in 2018 or was it 2017? I learned about Holtec's proposal in 2016. They call it consolidated interim storage. So we say CIS for short. So I learned from other activists that this company is planning to bring all of the waste from all of the nuclear power plants in the country to New Mexico, you know, to consolidate it here for the interim, interim meaning until they find a permanent place to put it. 
because you mentioned Yucca Mountain. That's a failed project. Mm -hmm. Yucca will never open. So where do we put this stuff? The United States has no permanent place to put this waste, which is, I don't know about, I think the last uh, estimate was nearly 80,000 metric tons. So what do we do with 80,000 metric tons of the highly radioactive waste? They say, let's put it in New Mexico. So the whole tech and then the government is entertaining these, these proposals stored in New Mexico just for now. And that'll buy us some time until we figure out what to do with it forever. So the permit is 40 years that can be extended twice. So maybe 120 years, but whatever time in between, of course, will add up. And by the time, you know, by that time, we're all going to be gone. And the waste will, or if if the waste ever comes here, they're never going to move it again. So the governor, the legislators, you know, everybody who's aware of this knows that this is this is not a good deal. Like Holtec is saying, oh, we'll just take it there temporarily and then we'll move it um, whenever the permanent place is built. And the the whole the, there's a lot more that goes into it. But I think one of the biggest issues is there is no agreement between Holtec and the state of the New the, the state of New Mexico for any kind of profit sharing. I mean, that's to me. I don't know. New Mexico is not in business. Uh, for, you know, storing nuclear waste. But there's no agreement for liability or, like, anything. So basically, if there's an accident, all of that will fall on us as taxpayers. Holtec will not be responsible. It'll be whatever, you know, municipality or, you know, essentially the state will will have to foot the bill for any nuclear accidents. I mean, of course, they say it's going to be safe and there won't be accidents. That's what they're telling us but we say okay there's going to be what they're proposing is 80,000 metric tons being shipped across the country um it will take decades you know by train so the idea is to move this stuff by train twice (laughs) first to new mexico and then to another place essentially putting the whole country at risk twice so this is what holtec is proposing And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Leona Morgan on nuclear colonialism in Indian country. This is part two of a three-part interview. We're going to take a short break and come back with the second segment and continue with our interview on nuclear colonialism in Indian country.
The song Mother Earth World by Radmila Cody here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, we continue our interview with Leona Morgan from the Diné Nation. She's a longtime community activist fighting against nuclear colonialism. Prior to the interview, we were speaking on Holtec International's proposal to build a high-level nuclear waste facility in the southeastern portion of New Mexico. And now back to nuclear colonialism in Indian country. We don't want it in New Mexico. First of all, we don't want to be a nuclear waste dump. We're tired of being a national sacrifice zone. Like I said, we already have WIP. So this facility is 13, well, 14 miles north of WIP as the crow flies. So it's in the same corner of the state as the only waste, um, that steep geological waste repository that I mentioned. The WIP is the only facility like its kind in the world. It's It's in a salt, it's in a layer of salt. So it's basically a salt mine that will permanently encase the radioactive waste. And then 40 miles to the east, is the Texas state line and right along the state line is waste control specialists, which operates a low level radioactive waste dump um, and a has hazardous waste facility. They also applied for a CIS license. So waste control specialist um, is in partnership with a French company to build the same thing, a consolidated interim storage facility. It's a little bit smaller, but it's only 40 miles away, and they were or they already received their license from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in September 2021, and that just went to court in November. So that the state of Texas is fighting it, as well as different groups, a local community group, Sierra Club, and then an oil company. There's you know a lot of legal battles. Um, the same. Entities are also challenging Holtec. Well, not the state of Texas, but the state of New Mexico. And then the Sierra Club and the, you know, different local community groups. I am also actually a named plaintiff on the WCS case. I'm sorry. WCS is in partnership with Orano. And that facility is, the proposal is by, the partnership company is called ISP, or Interim Storage Partners. So ISP is only 40 miles east of the Holtec site. It's, it's already developed as a low-level waste dump, so they're just, well, not just, but they're planning to add this CIS facility. And then Holtec, there's really nothing there, so it's just, it's still dirt. If you go travel to the site, it's beautiful, you know, it's just New Mexico, you know, minus all the fracking and oil and gas. But, um, yeah, so the Holtec site is not developed at all, and I think um, there's a lot of... Uh, 
resistance, and I think there's a good chance that it will never be developed. But, like, again, they're very close to each other, and this is also, you know, this points to what we call environmental racism. So you have this state in New Mexico, which is a very poor state, has a majority of people of color, lots of indigenous nations. Oh, and all of the indigenous, the indigenous Pueblo nations uh, under the All Pueblo Council of Governors, they passed a resolution opposing Holtec. We have the city of Los Cruces, you know, these counties, different counties in New Mexico. I, there's a long list of opposition, formal opposition in New Mexico to Holtec. But the local people, like I said, the local representatives and legislators, mayor, the mayor of Hobbs and Carlsbad, they're all in business together with Holtec. So it's, 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 it's a very complicated issue when you look at it on a federal level because maybe it's not complicated. But on a federal level, the government is trying to find a place to put the nuclear waste forever. So they're starting this thing called, well, they've been doing it for a while. It started during Obama's era called consent-based siting. And, and it sounds good. Like, yes, you want consent from the community where you're going to site this horrible stuff that, like you said, it's going to be radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years. So let's get consent first. But what the what the DOE is doing is they're pushing for um, they're they're basically some people say they're bribing communities so to research holding the waste and this happened in the 80s it's it repeats itself um, my friend always has this alphabet soup kind of poem she says how they called it in the 80s um, uh, monitored retrievable storage and now today it's called CIS. But over the years, they just repackaged it in different ways to try to sell this idea to communities to pay them to take this waste. So consent-based siting, what they're trying to do is sell this idea so that a, com- uh, a community will say, yes, we'll take this waste. And if there's, you know, what community, what price tag will a community put on themselves to become, you know, a national sacrifice zone? I don't know how many communities are willing to do that, but but this is what the U.S. government is doing, and internationally, there's really nowhere to put the waste, so we need to stop making the waste. In New Mexico, the reason I bring up this consent-based siting, I mentioned all the opposition from the governor. We have different cities, counties, lots of individuals, residents, NGOs, indigenous nations opposing Holtec. But because Holtec was proposed by this LLC made up of state officials and, and a couple municipality, a local, local elected, locally elected officials, because of that, it's considered as consent that those people in this for-profit company, because they invited Holtec, it's being seen as the community consents to it when the larger community Sometimes I question how much they even know about it. I live in Albuquerque and kind of in the center of this state. But when we travel down there, I talk to so many people and, um, you know, we have friends and, you know, going to the restaurants and eating, um, staying in hotels and just asking people. Some people know about the facilities if their relatives work there, but the majority of folks don't even know what WIP is. They just drive by it every day. And so to have this new 
proposal to bring all of the waste from the whole country here. I mean, we already have the weapons site, the WIP site, and that's the only facility in the country for weapons waste. And so we already have waste coming from all over the country, um, plutonium contaminated waste. And WIP constantly wants to expand. Um, they were supposed to close in 2024. It was it opened in 1999, and they were only supposed to be open for 25 years. And what they want to do is keep making it bigger and bigger and just keep it open forever. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Leona Morgan from the Diné or Navajo Nation on nuclear colonialism. You're listening to part two of a three-part interview as part of our series. And now back to the interview. And that that is another fight. That's a different fight that's happening in the state. But it's only 14 miles south of Holtec. So the, again, what is the cumulative impact of storing so much radioactive waste in one location where there's active fracking, like one of the most prolific oil-producing parts of the world? So I don't know. It's, it's, it's not a good idea. We oppose it. We're going to keep fighting it. Holtec hasn't been licensed. WCS has been licensed. Um, I don't know if the WIP expansions were approved, but that's, an, that's a recent thing that's been, that's been happening so if, if the WIP expansion, the, some of the expansions that they were seeking were not just in volume, but also types of waste. So right now, WIP only takes weapons waste, but they were considering taking other waste because the nuclear waste issue, radioactive waste in the country, all kinds of waste from energy, weapons, anything, it's a big, it's a big mess. There's nowhere to put it. Wow. So in the world as well, there's just not enough licensed facilities so what's what's happening is places like white mason mill this is the only uranium mill in the country it's not processing uranium because there's not a lot of uranium mining happening right now but under their license they're legally allowed to process other nuclear stuff that has uranium in it and then they're legally allowed to keep whatever results from that processing on site so they're processing waste from all over the world this is in the Four Corners area next to the White Mount, the Ute Mountain Ute community uh, in White Mesa. So the White Mesa Mill is acting as an ad hoc nuclear waste dump because legally it can store the waste there if it processes the waste. And so they're in business to do that under the guise of uranium production. So really their business is not really producing uranium, but just storing the waste. So... This is, you know, now that New Mexico already has WIP, it's, and, and then, like I said, 40 miles to the east, we have that low-level dump in um, Texas. Those are places that already exist. So they're trying to make them bigger and expand them. Those are issues that need a lot of attention. I'm really concerned about Holtec because this is a site that's, that hasn't even started yet. And what they're planning, it doesn't make any sense because, there have been studies that show nuclear waste at power plants are safe. They're safe for now. I think um, this it, for at least 30 or 40 more years. There's no, there's no rush to move it right now. And some of the communities near nuclear power plants are working toward keeping the waste at their nuclear power plant because of the dangers of moving it. They don't want to dump it on us. 
So there is movement. There are, you know, there's all kinds of resistance, not just from us in New Mexico, but there's even resistance at the source of the nuclear waste in some communities, like in Illinois, they're, they were looking at a state bill um, called the Stranded Act to, mm. you know, do job creation out of, you know, creating economic development to monitor the waste. So the waste is, is, is uh, it's not just dangerous, like it can cause, you know, environmental contamination. And of course, we're all worried about our health. But these things, the, the waste, the waste is not just dangerous to the environment and our human health. The waste is also something desirable to people who want to do bad things. Right. So, you know, it can be used for dirty bombs. So that's why there needs to be a lot of security. So some, some uh, places, they're looking at this, you know, the idea of keeping the waste on site for as long as possible uh-huh. instead of pushing to move it to New Mexico. So, so that makes more sense to me, you know, to just kind of, Keep it on site, leave it where it is, where it's safe for now. Don't endanger everyone along the railroads. And then the United States and different countries with waste really need to look at what to do with this forever for the long term. Because trying to dump it on, you know, communities of color, already overburdened communities, disproportionately impacted communities, this is just perpetuating what we started talking about at the beginning is nuclear colonialism Mm. and that waste because of the radioactivity and the longevity of that is going to have you know permanent impacts to those communities the thing that we need to do is stop making more waste because we don't know where to put the waste we already have but now there's all this talk about smnrs and this other thing coupling nuclear with other energies like nuclear hydrogen nuclear hydrogen hubs, um, carbon sequestration. I was just at this COP meeting, uh, the United Nations convening of parties in Egypt. And this is a meeting, an international meeting about climate change. And the gist of the conversation is not reducing, but continuing, you know, the status quo of pollution and, and, and still making more. And so the idea of coupling it with like, these other industries of um, either reprocessing waste or, like I said, carbon capture, those also create need energy and create their own type of waste. So what we need to do is have some real conversations about reduction, consumption, um, and then, you know, that definitely pokes at capitalism and neoliberalism, you know, on a larger scale. So humans as we are living today it's not sustainable obviously we see that but when we're talking about nuclear energy and nuclear development this is this is one of the biggest lies that nuclear is safe or carbon free or is going to save the climate i mean nuclear only causes death and destruction and forever radioactive contamination i'm thinking about uh, the lack of liability that these companies have, whether going back to even 1957, when the U.S. Congress passed the Price-Anderson Act and 
And uh, with that act, it or part of the 1957 Price-Anderson Act, is it stated that each nuclear plant uh, owner's accident liability is limited to something like $300 million per year, even though in 2016 it was estimated that the Fukushima Daiichi uh, nuclear accident had already exceeded a cost of $100 billion. And I, I was just wondering, um, in what you're sharing with our listeners, because of the lack of knowledge that even our own people have and, and just Americans and people throughout the world about nuclear colonialism and the necessity to have more conversations and more organization and more media coverage, more accurate media coverage, if you will, about um, all things nuclear. I was wondering if you could speak to, based on your lived experiences, you've done all this work regarding nuclear colonialization, which is very much alive and well and is getting a new breath for all the things that you've stated in our interview and in our conversation. But I was wondering if we could talk about how do you envision allyship, you know, non-native people and, and even indigenous people that are unfamiliar with the information that you're sharing. How do you envision a future of uh, allyship and stopping nuclear colonization? Because I think of, you know, a lot of people talk about Standing Rock, right? And all these thousands and thousands of people and international attention that was generated, you know, over the struggle at Standing Rock is why can't we have that, you know, when it comes to stopping say in this case, a proposed, you know, high level nuclear waste facility, you know, uh, by Holtec. Right. I, (laughs) I would, that would be amazing. Yeah. To see a lot of folks camped out to stop that or even to stop a uranium mine. Yeah. Um, I mean, just, I, I know this isn't the question you asked, but, um, the site where we stopped, we stopped this ISL mine, um, in 2014, I thought we stopped it. I mean, there's a lot of more history and things that go into it, but I was out there on the land uh, a couple months, uh, last month, I went out to the site where we um, stopped the mine, and I was out there this summer, and I took some video, um, and I was with my Geiger counter, and I had noticed there were some high levels of radiation, higher than I would have expected, but I'm not an expert, so I'm just out there, you know, doing some some counties and uh, taking some Geiger counter readings. And then uh, I noticed this high level, which was alarming, but I didn't, I mean, I just thought, gosh, we've been coming here so many times. We keep bringing people here to do interviews. And this whole time I never knew it because I didn't have a Geiger counter back then. And the site, it was, it's north of Church Rock, the freeway I-40 and the railroad are, are, um, people call the whole area Church Rock, but Church Rock is, more along the railroad where the spill happened we call it the church rock spill but it's 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 a good 10 miles 11 miles north and the community there i mentioned redwater pond road and edith hood and others so there was two uranium mines out there and the mill well three like i said but two very close together and then the mill the isl site we were fighting it was close to those three sites now, last month I was out there and adjacent to our, the place where we had the big victory, 
I noticed some um, new vehicles, and someone had told me in November uh, a company called Laramide is beginning to drill out there for uranium, and this is a place that we had already uh, protected. Uh, we, I thought we already protected. I thought we already stopped it. They're not supposed to be mining. Um, there's an agreement called the Temporary Access Agreement. The company uh, that was that had the land there. We were fighting a company at the time. It was called URI, Uranium Resources Incorporated. They had acquired land from UNC, United Nuclear Corporation. So UNC was the one that was responsible for the big, the world's largest uranium spill. The moment of silence is over. And that was Leona Morgan on nuclear colonialism in Indian country. That was part two of our three-part interview. Tune in next week for the conclusion of nuclear colonialism in Indian country. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Radmila Cody, and the band Blackfire. A special thank you to Leonel Morgan. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Silence is over. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty mind.